My name's Stuart Wright, and today I've got to meet Paul Sung. Hello, Paul. Hi, Stuart. Now, we've come together to talk about your new documentary, which is called Dispossession, The Great Social Housing Swindle. Um, And that's going to be premiering at the East End Film Festival on the 8th of June. We'll put details in for the tickets and stuff in there. But do do you want to give people a brief synopsis as to what that documentary is about? Yeah, so... It's about what's happened to really council housing because there's a you know a difference between council housing and social housing. But over the last twenty odd years, um, council housing in this country has effectively you know been uh, dismantled. Um, the recent Housing and Planning Act from last year has brought in a number of measures that ostensibly are designed to solve the housing crisis, but in reality. Are going to make it very difficult for people that live in council housing to continue to do so. Things like removing lifetime tenancies. And so the film really is telling the human side of what's called the housing crisis. So it looks at, you know, meeting people in London, Glasgow and Nottingham. Uh, and these are people that have either lost their homes, whether they've been, you know, evicted from council housing or whether it's people that are in danger of losing their homes because they're going to be demolished. And it's really trying to just you know, tell those human stories and explain to people the value of council housing, because I think a lot of people have a misconception that if you live in council housing or social housing, you're somehow, you know, you're undeserving or you've somehow failed in society. And I think that's the thing that has come in through the arts and media, through government policy, you know, since I'd say, you know, the, the late 1980s. Um, so the film really is to explain to people the, the value and the purpose of social housing and to try and um, give people that, you know, live in council housing and social housing a means to, you know, tell their stories, really. Yeah, it's, it's it, I guess it's that thing about um, about how narrative have changed. I mean, my, my, my mother grew up on Langley Estate in East Manchester towards towards Oldham and that was the subject of um, the film Raining Stones and obviously the film portrayed it as quite the quite the hard environment quite the mm. harsh way to live and my mum's got nothing but happy memories and when they moved in there it was like it was a result to get you know to get in those houses there was no stigma there was no uh, there was no idea that you'd gone down in life it was a home because a home was somewhere where you lived yeah I mean, that's the thing. In, I mean, as you've just said, in, in the past, traditionally, when council housing you know, first came into, into being, people were, were proud of their council houses. You know, you, you had a lifetime tenancy. It was your home. Hmm. Whereas now, you know, the, the concept of council housing is all, all about, oh, that person somehow hasn't made it in life. You know, they're a failure. And it wasn't about that at all. It was about providing stable accommodation um, and, you know, a, a place where, you know, you could decorate it how you wanted to you knew that it was you know yours for life if you wanted it and that's all changed unfortunately and it's interesting that that, that, that part of the, the, the trigger for you is is the act of parliament because i'm what i remember i mean i'm, I'm watching a documentary it's sort of it's the thing that basically wasn't talked about in the media because what i remember of that act coming in was we're gonna we're gonna relax the planning laws we're gonna make it so you can just build extensions so you can get property built quicker without the fuss and foul of, of having to get planning permission. So it was this idea of the aspirational side of what the Act was going to do, not the destructive part of it, which is we're going to, we're clearly going to do nothing about increasing numbers of social housing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, the Act really was designed to benefit homeowners or potential homeowners. And, you know, you can take that back to Harold Macmillan and his original idea to create this property-owning democracy, which... I guess becomes a reality with Thatcher's governments with right to buy. Mm. Um, and so I think, you know, the Housing and Planning Act was purely designed to stimulate, you know, house building and home owning. Um, and, you know, that those are the things that drive an economy. You know, if you're building houses, you're then people are you know getting mortgages, they're paying interest on those mortgages. I don't think the Housing and Planning Act was designed to help people that are in need of, you know, stable housing the most. And, mm. 
you know, there's this term, isn't there, affordable housing, which is the biggest misnomer, I think, in our society, because some people in this country are paying, you know, up to 80 percent of their salaries on their rent, which is ridiculous. You know, in 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 Europe, it's it's a lot lower than that. On average, it's around about a third. But mm. in London, particularly in other inner city areas, the cost of rent is just astronomical. And I think that comes back to a very fundamental reason. And that is that the fact that when you don't have sufficient you know, levels of social housing or council housing, rents go up. And, mm. you know, the private rental market is, is ridiculous now. It's interesting. I mean, I went, to, I went to a lecture a while ago at the, at the LSE and they talked about this idea of an asset-based welfare society, which is unsurprisingly about you own something and then as you get older it pays for you in old age, as opposed to the government has to look after you, which, irony of irony, is it's the sort of it's the thing that um, Theresa May's just uh, done the big U- seemingly done the big U-turn on in terms of their manifesto. Um, but also, your documentary arrives at a time when we're seeing the first reduction in the percentage of homeowners to renters in this country. Yet, obviously, we're not seeing any any security of tenure happening like you enjoy on the continent if you're a private renter. Um, mm. So clearly, we're not going to. It isn't going to get more and more people owning. Yet, there is no there is no nothing in the, what the government seems to be proposing anywhere to, to help people that just need a home as opposed to people that are going to invest in one. Um, mm. And, and these, these, these are big areas, aren't they? These are big things to discuss. So you as a documentary filmmaker, how did you, how did you get to sort of what you could tell a story, which would also obviously illuminate the macro side of it, which is a government and its policies, but also tell us the real human side of the cause and effect of this? Well, I mean, the initial idea from the documentary came from, was inspired really by a friend of mine who's a housing campaigner and activist. And she was explaining to me what was happening all over London with, you know, this program of estate demolitions that's going on. And so she started to introduce me to people that were campaigning. I met with the Save Cressingham Gardens campaign in Lambeth. And, you know, gradually when you start to sort of go to these things and you, you know, you go on protests and stuff, you generally get to sort of meet a lot of different people. And then people began to find out about the film um, because part of the budget was crowdfunded. So it had a bit of a presence on social media. Mm. And so it was really just about people getting in touch or people recommending other people to speak to and, you know, going and meeting up with them, having a chat. And I think in total we interviewed, well, close to 100 people really for the film. And obviously you can't put everyone in. Yeah. But, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It, it just sort of spread a bit by word of mouth, really. And, it, you know, one of the things as a filmmaker that I think if you're making documentaries, that's always difficult. And I guess as well, if you're making features, um, it's the things that end up on the cutting room floor because people have given up their time and, you know, they've got very interesting stories, but you can't always include everyone. So it was it was difficult to not necessarily to know what to include, but, you know, to have to leave people out. Mm. Um, and I, some of them I've probably not even told yet, so um, you know, they're probably going to come and see the film and hate my guts. But you know that's that's the way that it, it, it happens. But yeah, I mean it, it just ballooned from you know from the crowdfunding campaign and then people getting in touch and just meeting people round and about. I mean particularly in in Glasgow, there's a real sense of community all over the city there that I've not really seen anywhere else in the UK. It's a very special place, I think. Mm. Um, particularly there you know you we filmed in Gorbals and in Govan Hill and other areas of the city and you'd go around and then someone would sort of pop into someone's house and oh you should go and speak to so-and-so so you know a lot of um, a lot of friendships were made during the making of the film um and it, and it became really an idea that we would you know you have a duty I think to tell people's stories and represent them truthfully um and being a documentary filmmaker obviously the truth can be what you, how you interpret it and then present it. But I mean, for me personally, from, from my perspective, I wanted to make sure that we were honest and that we did also, you know, in telling people's stories, try to speak to, you know, the opposing view, which in some cases was the local authorities, politicians, um, property developers. And, you know, in most cases, we, we got to do that. I mean, Nicholas Sturgeon, whose constituency um, covers Govan Hill in, in, in Glasgow. We interviewed her. Uh, we interviewed a woman called Soraya Sadiq, who's one of the local Labour councillors. It was only really in London where we met with opposition. Um, we wanted to interview Lambeth Council about what's going on on Central Hill and Crescent Gardens, but 
They refused to talk to us. Um, similarly, we covered uh, Balfour Tower and went what happened there. And essentially what happened at Balfour Tower was it was a council-owned building that was stock transferred to a housing association called Poplar Harker. And this is in Tower uh, Hamlets, East London, for those. That's it, yeah. yeah and yeah. the residents were given um, a vote on that. And, you know, apparently they all voted in favour of the transfer, yet the people that we spoke to had never met anyone that had actually voted for that. So mm. Poplar Harker were given this, you know, grade two listed building designed by Erno Goldfinger originally to be housing for the local working class community. Mm. And so Poplar Harker were given this and then decided that the building was in a state of disrepair and they had to... Um, move everybody out to do essential refurbishment works, which they did, told everyone they could come back. But then that went, you know, by the by. And it turned out that everybody couldn't come back. And so you had this um, this grade two listed building that's now being refurbished and will be sold off as luxury apartments. And um, we asked, you know, Poplar Harker to get their side of the store and they, they wouldn't talk to us. They gave us a statement. And I refuse to put that statement in the film because, you know, anyone can write a statement. Um, if you if you've got if you've not done anything wrong, then, you know, you go on camera and you say your piece. But mm. you know, but it's a balanced documentary. It's a lot more balanced than I thought it would be. Um, when I started making it, I you know was aware of that there was a swindle had effectively happened. And the title kind of remained because I, I do think that what's gone on in terms of um, government neglect and mismanagement of council housing has been a swindle. So it's a very balanced film because, you know, as you were saying, it is the story is designed to tell the stories of the people that have been affected, but it also needs to, you know, give the other people involved or the other parties involved a chance to, you know, say their piece. No, no, it's, it's far, it's far less hysterical than, than, than what you discovered deserves really. It's, mm. and, and I guess that's hats off to you for for keeping the keeping it on a level, as it were. Because I think I think there was a couple of things. There's, there's obviously the, that 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 popular hardcore thing that you you identified, and you just think that's that's just taking people's trust and throwing them in their face. You know, mm. on 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 a basic administration thing, it's like, can you move out while we clean up? And everyone takes that on good faith, and then you're not allowed to come back because of what <laughs> you know. Yeah. And you've now you've now got to find a home. But then there was other things that you that you, you you did really, and it was really understated. But it was uh, you you get you get you get one of your one of the people talking about. I think it was one of the Lambeth residents talking about how um, they how much a, a flat costs where they live. So they're like you know they're quite happy to move out, but they're only being offered X as a statutory minimum compensation for the compulsory mm. purchase. And it's something hysterical, like four, five, six times as much for a basic one-bed flat in the area. So essentially, the the subtext of it all is, this is kind of like poverty cleansing, isn't it? And yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the term that people use, um, social cleansing, is mm. it's a very emotive term. And there are those that, you know, think this is exactly what's going on. There are other people that think it's not, but... Whatever your view on it, when you've got local councils that are encouraging people to move out of the area, telling them they can't afford to live in a particular area and offering them, you know, houses in Birmingham, Hastings, Manchester, what you're effectively doing is enabling social cleansing. Um, you know, these are people that from proud working class communities that have lived in those areas for generations and to suddenly say, right, you can't afford to live here anymore. Off you go. You know, you're going to go and live in Leicester. You know, that's 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 very dodgy territory because, you know, what that then creates is an area, particularly in, you know, in the cities, places like London, where certain postcodes that are covetable and close to transport links become, you know, almost like citadels for people that are, are well off. Um, I mean, I'm born and bred in London, I lived there, you know, for most of my life until about eight years ago. And I go back and, you know, I'm from South East London and I, you know, I still recognise the place, but it's, it's the effects of gentrification, which are very separate from social cleansing, are very apparent. You know, you've got all these artisan bakeries and these craft ale pubs and, you know, that's nice for people if you like that sort of thing. But what that does is it, as well as maybe alienating some of the local people who don't necessarily feel welcome in those places, is it brings in people that have got money that, you know, aren't doing anything wrong by moving to those areas, you know, but it effectively means that the people that have traditionally lived there can't afford to live there because 
it's, you know, they're being priced out. And I think that as a society, that's, you know, particularly in, in this country, that's on the increase. And it's something that isn't very good for us because we're just going to end up living in these, you know, homogenized communities. Yeah, and, and I think it, it, obviously it's it's more of an issue for for London as I thought it going into your, going into your documentary, but then I think it was one of your Glasgow or your Nottingham people. I think yeah, it was a Glasgow one where she talked about apartments being two hundred thousand pounds, and she's going like I think it was in Govan. I'm going to say that for the sake of in the oh, in the Gorbals, yeah, Gorbals, yeah. sorry, yeah, 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 and it's like so suddenly that it's almost like the aspiration of of the gentrification is is sort of we're saying it and therefore it is so there's no kind of because because I, I remember on the documentary her face was kind of like to live here what are they thinking charging that yeah i mean um, i remember i know the interview you mean um and she says you know in in the gorbals <laughs> yeah 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 because you know that was an area that you know there's a really strong sense of community there in the area since you know since it's been there but a regeneration project where they spent, you know, millions and millions of pounds, effectively priced out a lot of the people that are from that area. Um, you know, the, I think the average price of a one bedroom flat in the Gorbals is now six hundred pounds a month. And you know, if you people that grew up in that area, you know, decades ago, and knowing that it has this, you know, does have a reputation, um, are shocked by that. Um, but you go there now and. You know, the first time I'd ever been there was last year and, you know, just walking around it and looking at it, it you wouldn't equate it with its previous reputation, you know, for crime. Mm. It's so close to the city now that it's it's been transformed. And, you know, just just down the road from there is another area that's covered in film called Govan Hill. Um, and, you know, the, the residents of Govan Hill, which is, you know, suffering from, you know, all sorts of social issues, overcrowding, derelict housing, it's overrun with rats and bed bugs, and it's a health hazard. And, you know, this is in Nicola Sturgeon's constituency, and a lot of the residents that we spoke to think that, you know, it's it's part of a plan. It's a conspiracy that, you know, they, they run the area down, and then the plan is to kind of mass purchase the properties on the cheap and then redevelop it. And, you know, I put that to Nicola Sturgeon when I interviewed her, and, you know, she denied it. You have to take people at their word that that isn't the plan. I mean, it sometimes ends up what happens by default, though. I was um, going to say I'm not. I, I I sort of I can see why it becomes a solution, but I also I can see how neglect can happen without it being a big conspiracy to neglect and then sell mm. off. Because you because you can think twenty years of of neglect couldn't have anticipated the idea that people would live in those areas twenty years in the future. So yeah. Because I look at Manchester, where I'm from, and it's sort of there are areas around East East City Centre, Manchester that nobody would walk around at night when mm. I was a kid. And like now, you know, people are buying buying apartments so they can have you know city living. Yeah, and I think that that was there was something. I mean, it, it's it, I mean, there's there's lots of there's always unintended consequences, isn't there, for any kind of good good intended policies? I remember like the early '90s was the the start of what we now know as the urban renaissance. Mm. You know, we'd had the flight, all the cities had sort of decayed and they were just offices and shops and people are going, and, and cities like Manchester, Leeds, Liverpool and, and even London for that matter, started to sort of design and plan around getting people back into the cities. Um, and that, that could only, I mean, sadly at that point, that could only ever be fueled by a kind of profit and loss basis, not, not a social housing need. Mm. And, I, and I'm guessing that the pattern form that, hold on a minute, this is fairly profitable. We take a shell of a building, <laughs> we refurb it and we sell them off on plat, you know, and that kind of thing. And then, yeah. I mean, you've got, you've, as well as, you know, having um, councils and private property companies trying to, you know, build houses and, you know, find properties like this. You've also got, you know, what, the last 20 years a budding landlord class of people, you know, I've got a couple of mates that, you know, they're not loaded, they're not rich, but, you know, they, one of them got an inheritance and then he bought a house, did it up, he sold it, he bought another one, et cetera, et cetera. You know, he's got about four now. And mm. that became, that became a real trend in, I don't know exactly when, but certainly it came out of like that, as you say, the nineties, that city living thing mm. and would, you know, find, you know, some, in some cases, you know, somewhere that was not necessarily derelict, but a bit of a shell, do it up, sell it. And then that became a thing. And for me, that's not what housing should be about. I mean, I'm not, 
naive enough to think that you know we we should all even want to live in homes that we don't own because that isn't the, the way that I think we're conditioned as as people in this country or what we're told to be like. But I think that there is a real there's a real thing for me that housing should be fundamentally about being a home and it's increasingly housing is seen as an investment and you've seen that with the amount of um, foreign investors that own property all over the country not just in London but in Manchester in Glasgow in Leeds and it's just seen as a place to park your money you know property is seen as somewhere that you can if you've got a few quid park it there an increase in value. You don't have to do anything with it. You know, sometimes sometimes people buy this property and just leave it empty. Mm. When you've got six hundred thousand people estimated to be homeless in one form or another in this country, you know, it's it's sickening. So uh, how how when you're doing this documentary, do you do you keep that distance from what obviously are emotional, personal, individual stories? How do you keep sight? of the bigger story you're trying to tell, while at the same time knowing that what what the story has to be about individuals, but also needing to tell the tale of of of, of the bigger thing that's gone wrong, not just that person's personal woe. I think, you know, it is a you have to you have to you have to be balanced. And I mean during the interviews, um, you know, you're hearing stories about what's happened and, you know, you you have to you can't remain impartial. Well I can't right. anyway. Um but for me, you know, once you've you've done an interview and then you know you you listen back to it, you watch it. I, I sit there and anything that they've said, I think right, we need to try and substantiate that, or we need to sort of you know look into that and then find someone else that can maybe speak against it. And um, in, in most cases, it was it was easy to find people or to identify people that um were perhaps either responsible or contributed to problems it's another thing when you're interviewing them because a lot of them are politicians mm. to actually get them to admit any culpability um or to actually tell you the truth i mean there are one or two people in the film that i suspect weren't telling the truth yeah and I, you know i pressed them um but the style of films that i make my voice is not in the film so you know, you 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 don't have an argument. You know, it's not like I can't be Jeremy Paxman and, and give them a good grilling. Yeah. Um, but also, in, you know, in, in in something like this, you have to be able to prove things. And a lot of the time, there were suspicions I had and things we uncovered that we couldn't prove um, to do with, um, let's just say, money that had exchanged hands in particular places for certain things to happen. Mm. Um, and unless you can prove that, or unless you've got enough money to pay for a lawyer to defend anything you that you that you claim then you can't put it in in a film really um but yeah it was it was it was a case of you know listening to people um hearing their stories and then you know presenting another view really i mean in the section on uh govan hill in the film you know we we met with nicholas sturgeon we met with to rise to deep um and we, you know we, i think in that one we, we got everybody's view really i think people will make up their own mind when they watch it and i think you know most people i think will watch it and and be on the side of the people rather than the politicians um and there's probably a good reason for that no and i, th- I think that's that's an important part of your documentary is that you 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 give you give individuals who probably are who who who, who people would see as the voiceless a chance to dis- discuss what's been going on and 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 going back to the tower hamlet example you know a guy who's been homeless two years gets a flat he does it up he gets it how he wants it he's asked to move out because they're gonna have to do some some mandatory refurbishment and then told he can't move back in that's that's awful yeah just, on any level doesn't matter what public doesn't matter what act of parliament's been done you know just that simple process of i trusted you and you've let me down and i'm I'm vulnerable in the sense that financially I can't just choose where I live, and yet I thought I'd found my little piece of heaven. Yeah, I mean that that was heartbreaking. I you know, remember that day really vividly. Um, a uh, a friend of mine called Rab he had um, introduced us to Gavin, um, and so we went and saw him one morning, and sitting in you know in his new place and hearing him you know tell tell the tale of what had happened and explain about what he'd loved about his flat, and you know he was. What he said really, really stuck with me. And as I was interviewing, I was aware that I was, you know, you do, you are conflicted sometimes because he was clearly upset. And 
I think there are certain places when you're interviewing people that, you know, you can push them. Um, some places you perhaps shouldn't. And I was very careful to sort of check with him at every moment. You're still OK. You're still OK to keep talking. And then I think I said to him towards the end of the interview, I said, right, can I just put you back you know, on your balcony? And I want you to describe what you can see. And he was quite choked up as he sort of described what he could see. And he would describe what it was like all through the seasons of the year. So, you know, during the snow and during the fog. And, then, you know, that for me is one of the most powerful moments of the film where, you know, he he was so happy there. And where he's living now, he's not, you know, it's it's not anywhere near as nice where he is now. And those little stories are very important because they're not one off stories. They're all unique stories. But it's it's happening all over the country that people are having their homes taken away. Um, and sometimes, you know, they, they are let back into the new development. But, you know, the the best case I found is in the Haygate estate in Southwark, which is sort of near to where I grew up. And right. uh, so what happened there was you had 3000 people living on the Haygate estate. Um, and then, you know, this, there were problems with the estate. You know, there were certain sections of it that had been allowed to fall into a state of disrepair. But, you know, again, is that is that deliberate neglect or is it managed decline? You know, there's a very thin line between those two processes. So, you know, you've got these 3,000 people. Um, Southern Council says, right, we've made a deal with an Australian property company called Lendlease. We're going to redevelop the estate. So we're going to move you all off. And then, you know, you can come back. And then that doesn't happen. They move people to other areas of London, some to even outside of London, to Essex and places like that. And then they re redevelop the estate and they, you know, knock down what was, I think, about a thousand odd homes and they re rebuild something like 2,700. And then of that 2,700, only 82 are available for social rent. Mm. And think, you know, why people don't trust local authorities, because local authorities have got very difficult problems that they face. You know, they've traditionally in, until, you know, fairly recently been prevented from building by government policies. Um, their budgets have been cut to the bone, but they're not they need to be a lot smarter and they need to work with communities and with residents you know, in their interests, not, you know, sitting in meetings and predetermining the outcome of a decision about demolishing a council estate based on a balance sheet, because, you know, we've, some of these councils are millions and millions of pounds in debt. But I think it's all about being, you know, smart and and, be, and showing a bit of empathy. And, you know, councils like Southwark and Lambeth have not done that. They've not engaged very well with residents. Um, and I think that that is one of the, the key issues to maybe, you know, for people being able to trust councils is that they need to be engaged with and that hasn't happened in london really i guess it's it's kind of symptomatic of a of um of a disconnect we've seen in the wider sort of democracy about how people have been largely ignored by westminster and mm. the same kind of complacency and i think fear as well i think you know having spoke to friends who've worked in local authorities there's more stick than carrot with the way that Westminster deals with how local authorities are funded. So it's like if you, it's all about rules to stop you doing what you want. I'm guessing things like what Militant did in, ended up doing in Liverpool has frightened governments forever and ever. This idea that some would go off and do what's good for the, what they feel is good for the area, which obviously isn't going to make more Tory voters, for example. Mm. Not yeah. too, too conspiratorial about it. So uh, you have your narrator is Maxine Peake, isn't it, in this documentary? Yeah. And yeah. Max Maxine's a, a very fairly visible face and voice for for the for, in the current general election and previously uh, for for the Labour Party. So she seems a good fit with the film. How, how, how did you get her involved? Well, Maxine, um, my friend Lisa McKenzie, who's in the film um, and who is going to be doing the Q and A tour with me. Um, her book Getting By, I think Maxine um, went to the book launch um, and they got talking and then they became mates. And when we released um, Invisible Britain, um, I think a friend of mine, Georgia, had gone to see it in Manchester and Maxine Peake was there and she sort of sent me his text and oh, Maxine Peake's here. So I said, oh, uh, great. And then I asked Lisa if, you know, she'd asked Maxine if she would write us like a little thing for the DVD, like a, you know, how much she'd enjoyed the film which she did. And then um, she said, I really liked your film. This was on an email. Um, the only thing it needed was a female narrator. Ha, ha, ha. Just kidding. But then I <laughs> if, if I do another film, you know, Maxine Peake, great voice, um, a really principled person. 
And then when the idea for the film came up, she was the first person I had in mind. So I emailed her and said, you know, we've got to be doing this. And she said, yep, yeah, um, let me know when you're ready and da 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 da. So we stayed in touch. And then I went up to Manchester earlier this year. And, you know, when you, you have an idea of what someone's like from knowing their politics and seeing them in interviews, and then they're exactly like that. And they, you know, they, they're a wonderful person. It was like that, really. Um, a lot of the time, I think you can meet people and, you know, who you respect and look up to, and then you meet them in person and, and it's something different. But with Maxine Peake, it was exactly the idea of I, I had of her. You know, she was wonderful. And she did the voiceover in, in two takes. Um, she was, I think she was well willing to do a third and fourth take, but she just nailed it. And as I was writing the voiceover, it was always her voice that I was writing for. And, you know, she, as well as, you know, being a very principled person and someone whose politics I share um just just that voice i mean it needed a northern narrator i think because a lot of it's set in london then bits of it are set in glasgow and nottingham and i think that, you know there are a lot of southern voices in it so it needed someone to kind of ground it and explain the situation that was from was from the north and she was perfect for it. i mean i can't imagine it now with anyone else's voice oh no indeed indeed now you mentioned invisible britain your, your sleaford mods documentary um, which, um, as your your PR your PR stuff sort of says, part band documentary, part state of the nation film. Um, what what lessons learned from that first feature length documentary? Do you think you took into dispossession? Um, well, from a technical point of view, um, get a sound person. <laughs> <laughs> we we didn't. We, the thing is, we didn't end up doing that because we didn't have enough money in the end because uh, when we did Invisible Britain we, it was just me and Nathan and you know we filmed and recorded all the interviews but we didn't have a sound man and we were beset with so many sound problems because neither of us really knew what we were doing when it came to the sound you know yeah. it, was, it was my first film it was his first film and yeah we found that sound was a big issue so with this film we were a bit more careful um, you know it was basically me and uh, Kieran who was our cameraman and Kieran like knew a little bit more about sound, so we were much more careful in recording the interviews, and the sounds a lot better. But yeah, I think you know for the next film I'm going to make, we're going to record all the interviews in a studio, just because you know with sound, if you if you get it wrong at the time, as you know, you can't go back and fix it. You know, you can maybe mask certain things and you know enhance it in other ways, but if if, if there's a massive screw up with the sound, then you're kind of stuck with it. It's different with visuals, isn't it? Because you can use B-roll and other stuff, but well, yeah. no, I think this is, I think it's the weird oxymoron of, of, of audio, of, of film is that we'll, we'll tolerate bad images more than we'll tolerate bad sound when we're watching something. Yeah, I mean, because it, I guess it assaults the ear more, doesn't it? In, yeah. In a different way. Yeah. Well, you can't, so, I guess, you, I guess if something's been said with something you're watching, it, it arguably your, your instinct is this must be important. Whereas mm. if, if, if the image is slightly dodgy or pixelated, you're kind of like, okay, that was the best they could get. <laughs> yeah. You know. In, I mean, and, and the other thing I suppose was, you know, when I was doing the Invisible Britain interviews, um, I always try not to interrupt people when they're speaking and to, you know, listen and let them finish their points. But there are a couple of times where, you know, as a, as a first time interviewer, my voice interjected or, or I said, hmm, or, or laughed. And, you know, that kind of would, <laughs> would ruin it. So, one thing I, you know, took on board with this film was to just sit there and ask the question and just and just shut up, basically. It's a tough one. That I've never learnt it yet, fortunately. <laughs> fortunately, you're going in a separate track on this podcast, and I go in a separate track. So if I if I laugh over anything, I can get rid of me. <laughs> it won't sound like I've been very amusing then, though. <laughs> All right, I'll leave that laughing for you. <laughs> I interviewed uh, Johnny Owen about um, his, 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 his documentary on uh, I Believe in Miracles about the, the Nottingham Forest um, European Cup winning side. And in the film, he actually includes that bit where he can't help himself from laughing, which for a film that doesn't include his voice was an, became a decision that was worth keeping in because it was funny. And, it, and for the audience, it helped you get, keep the laugh going. But I know what you mean. If, if if you set the dogma of this is the people I'm talking to's voice, not me interviewing people. Anytime you sort of talk, it it stops. It stops what they're saying being useful as as footage, I guess, doesn't it? 
Yeah, I mean that. I mean that was has been a conscious decision from day one for me, really. Um, you know, my Invisible Brick was my first film. I didn't go to film school. I only picked up a camera for the first time two years ago. Um, but it was a conscious decision that I didn't want to be on camera. I didn't want to be in my films. I mean, I, for the next film I'm making and films, I don't even want to use narration anymore. Um, I, I'd like, and, and also, you know, I'm not, I don't want to use talking heads anymore. I want to try and, you know, develop as a filmmaker and and use techniques that are, you know, less obvious. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not interested in being, you know, like Louis Theroux and sitting there because I think you can overshadow the story if you do that. It can become a bit about you. Mm. And also, I like some of his stuff, and you know, also people like Michael McDonald. Um, you know his his films. He is a, he's a good character. He's a strong character, but it's not for me. You know, I, I prefer to be behind the camera and let people speak for themselves. Yeah, there's 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 more to journalism than just being a justice warrior. I think mm. sometimes. Yeah. Um And and I think that's. I mean, I, I saw what you're talking about. You, you're moving more towards the kind of that's the way the way that Senna's done and things like that, where it's. It's yeah, just I mean, the voice of people talking and maybe archive footage with some current footage and that tells yeah. its own narrative. Yeah, I mean, like the my favourite documentary of all time is The Filth and the Fury, the Julian right. Temple one about the pistols, which I'm sure you've seen. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And what I love about that film is, you know, it, there aren't any talking heads. Even when he films the band, those aren't really talking heads because you can't really see them. Mm. And I always thought that he made that as a stylistic choice to sort of, convey that there had been this great rock and roll swindle and they were kind of in silhouette because they were villains. But I went to a Q&A screening of the film when um, he was talking afterwards and he said that the reason he did it was because he didn't want the audience to see the band as they are now. He wanted to take people back to that period from, you know, the mid to late 70s and, and be there because obviously all the footage that you were seeing was brilliant footage, great archive from that time. And to see the band as they were, you know, then in their sort of, I think they would have been in their 40s then and wrinkled and he didn't want that. He wanted it to be right, you're back there and you're just listening to these eyewitness accounts almost in the moment. Um, and I think it worked really well. And, you know, you mentioned Senna. There's also um, by the same director, Amy, which is yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. a similar thing. And also um, the Oasis documentary, Supersonic, I thought that was really strong in that, you know, you don't see Liam and Noel or any other people. You just hear their voices and then you see this great selection of B-roll and, you know, there's photographs that they've animated and other stuff. And, you know, whether you like Oasis or not, that was a great documentary. Yeah, no, one, one of my favourites is, um, is, have you seen Rough Cut and Ready Duped? No, I haven't. By I had Dom Shore on. I've interviewed Dom Shore on directors of that. Um, and that's footage from 1978 to 1981. Mm. Put together in in like maybe ten years ago. All right, so, yeah. and it sort of interviews with Stiff Little Fingers, footage of um, in Brockwell Park playing free gigs. It's phenomenal because it's sort of it has that idea of the of the social history. Mm. Without and when it was shot, there was no idea that any of the individual bits that were shot would be put together in a, in a montage of, of, of information that would tell a story when you look back at it post-millennium mm. and go, wow, that, we, we're not like that anymore. So you've got like people like Anthony Wilson, Charles Shamuri, um, a certain ratio. It's amazing. I check, check it out. I mean, because your, your next project is, is on that era, isn't it? Your, your... Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's called Polystyrene, I Am A Cliche. Um, it's about the X-Ray Specs founder, feminist punk icon polystyrene and it's been made with her daughter celeste bell mm. um, and our writer is um, a woman called zoe howe who's written extensively about you know the punk scenes doing a really good book on the slits um and it's it's essentially taking eight moments from polly's life um and examining them sort of you know from the perspective of celeste but also from the present day so the one that you know we could we could start with is, is Hastings Pier, where she saw the Sex Pistols on her nineteenth birthday. So for that, you know, we'll have a, a tracking shot going down the pier in the present day with a voiceover from Celeste, where essentially she's almost narrating a letter to her mum, where she's reminding her mum of what she did and sort of questioning what she saw and you know asking her what it must have been like that sort of thing. So that's um, going into production. Pretty soon, we've we've got our first bit of funding, which was from a crowdfunding campaign to 
we're seeking um, investment and you know, potential partnerships with people. And it was planned to come out in November 2018 um, for the 40th anniversary of germ-free adolescence. So, yeah, really excited to be working on that one because the last, the first two films I've made have been, you know, political films really. Hmm. Um, and it's quite intense to to have done both of those films and to have, you know, essentially for every day of the, you know, of working on them, which you know, one of them took about seven months, the other one took about a year. Yeah. To be dealing with those issues day in day out, and you know, it's, it's, it'd be good to have a bit of a break from from that. And obviously, you know, Polly's story isn't all isn't you know isn't a fairy tale. Um, you know, she suffered from mental illness um, and some other tragedies of her life. So it's not like it's going to be you know like a walk in the park or anything. But mm. it's nice to have that break before I'll go back to doing you know another political film. Well, no. Well, let's let's let's. I mean, good luck with that. Uh, but let's remind people then. So, Dispossession, the great social housing swindle, premieres. Is it eighth of June at Eastern Film Festival? Yeah, eighth of June, um, which is election night um, at Rio Cinema in Dawson. There's still some tickets available. We'll put a link in the show notes for you. Um, Thank you. And so, what's the plan? Are you going to do? You're going to be doing Q and A's again with this one. With the with this possession, yeah, yeah, is that the planned when to, to yeah, take well, on tour? There's a Q and A at the premiere on the eighth of June. Yeah. Then the West End premiere is um, on the fifteenth of June at Picture House Central. There's a Q and A then, and then at every other screening around the UK from mid June through to probably the end of August, where possible, there'll be a Q and A. So I think we've announced around fifteen screenings so far. So we're going to. Uh, Nottingham, Hebden Bridge, Leeds, Birmingham, Hull, Leicester, Glasgow, um, Devon, and then more will be announced. And wherever we go, the, the idea is that as well as being a film, this is a campaign now where at each screening we'll be inviting local people, representatives from campaigns, residents, or from housing or homelessness organisations to be on a Q&A panel and for us to discuss with the audience you know how, you know how this swindle has affected us all, and what we can do to try and you know protect our our homes and our communities. Um, so we'll be doing a handout that will list various campaigns. Um, and yeah, I mean the idea of it is to sort of take it around the country and and engage with people. You know, um, I think I w- it wouldn't really feel right to just have made it and then just have put it out and not do anything more. I think you know there's almost. Uh, a sense of duty to try and make a small contribution towards, I don't know, helping in some way. I think if, if the film as a result of it being made, you know, if it saved even one person's home, then it's done its job. Hopefully it could save more, but we'll have to see. No, well, yeah, I think that's the, that's the one thing that when, when, when your documentary finished, I felt like your story, as it were, it only just started because this is kind of like the, the kind of warning klaxon that goes, you do understand that public policy isn't trying to make more social housing. Quite the contrary. I mean, as a sort of crude summary of what you've discovered. And this hasn't just started last year. This has been something that sort of flows, maybe not neatly, but it certainly does start with right to buy. And all the rules that make local authorities unable to do what they want, all the decisions in terms of how social housing is going to get taken forward, the move towards... Um, affordable housing and other phrases I've heard is submarket rent houses, which is another expression I've heard, <laughs> which, which are, you know, again, are not that, are just the same year. It's 95% of the market price. Okay, so instead of being £700 a room, it's 630 for a room. Well, that's still a lot of money for most people. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so that, that, that's really exciting then that you've, you've sort of, you, you, it's it's a rally call. I was going to say, it, from what you found, you know, what what's what's the hope to be taken from dispossession for you? I think the hope of it is that some people, you know, have, have started to get really, really organised. And you know, there's a guy in the film um, called Tom who's from Cressingham Gardens, and he actually combined what he was, you know, doing, you know, with his with his career to to you know suit it to help their campaign. So he's doing a PhD. I don't know. I can't remember exactly what it's in, but you know that, that guy knows more about housing than pretty much anyone at Lambeth Council, I'd imagine, because mm. he's he's had to learn the law, 
And, you know, they put together their own people's plan that was an alternative to demolishing their estate where they spoke to like surveyors and to accountants and all sorts of people. And their plan would have involved building on the you know, existing estate and creating actually more social housing, but at a fraction of the cost. And Lambeth obviously just turned around and went, nah, because they'd already made up their mind. But I think there's hope to be taken from people like, you know, the Save Crescent Gardens campaigners, from, you know, people that, uh, that aren't in the film, like Focus E15 Mums, what they did, people up in Scotland, the Govan Hill Community Campaign. You know, these are people that have turned around and said, you know what, we're going to do something about this. We're not just going to roll over and take this from you. We're going to get organised and we're going we're gonna to fight you. And I think that is the hope that people could take from the film, that you don't just have to lay down and die. You know, you can, you can make things awkward. And the more awkward you can make it for property developers, the more bad press you can create for them, you know, the, the less inclined they're going to be to do this. And I think a lot of it isn't going to be that you can just, you know, you put up a wall of resistance that just makes it untenable for them to continue, you know, and there are lots of ideas that I'm sure are going to be discussed over the coming months about how we can do that and lots of knowledge sharing and, you know, conversations to be had. Yeah, I mean, what, what, I don't know if you ever saw the film Pride, about the, I have, yeah, about the mining strike. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was. I mean, I remember crying in the first twenty minutes when Paddy Constantine's character goes to the gay club and does his speech to those people who wanted to support him. And immediately, what immediately struck me was that level of solidarity that existed across many miles that usually they wouldn't bump into each other. Mm. It's a, it's gone. And but what I've some of the things I saw in your film is actually. That's just my perception that it's gone. And in reality, there are people with tremendous amounts of empathy and, 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 and want to support people that, that need the support and want to work on behalf of people to help them get just a decent life. It does, exi it does exist still. It hasn't evaporated completely. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of people up and down the country that have got, you know, compassion and empathy for what's going on. And I think it's about sort of tapping into that and I think you know we could have made a very angry film we could have made you know one of those sort of documentaries where it's all about you know us and them but I didn't want to do that I wanted to make a film that would just you know lay the truth plain and simple by telling you know human stories um, because people you know don't really necessarily know what is happening to council housing in this country and they have a, a, a miss misconstrued idea of it and that's you know due to poverty porn and you know some of the tv shows that depict council estate residents as criminals or drug dealers whatever so i think you know this film people that see it it'll be, it'll be nice for people that you know aren't from council estates and never lived on one maybe never even been on one to actually see the reality because if you believe of everything that you read in the sun the daily mail and you know see on on benefit street then you'd have a very warped idea of what a council house resident was. Yeah, no, I think that's one of the one of the important things that your film goes some way to try and debunk. I mean, I know in this day and age of I'm right, you're wrong levels of debate, it's not going to change some of the more um, indignant people's minds. But no, it was it was a it was a welcome to see that idea that you know people don't need to be driving around in brand new cars and working in in marketing to be somehow considered civilized human beings. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, this, uh, this idea of just, just a roof over your head and a sense of community. And also there's the value. I mean, I want to actually, what your film addresses, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't labor it, but it addresses something that I've always, I've always been keen on, which is the, the sort of the value of something versus the cost of something. So we'll always be told we can't afford to do something. But in reality, what what I could read in between the lines of your movie is that ideologically, certainly the, 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 the conservative governments we've had in the last 30, 40 years have wanted to diminish reliance or the supply of council housing, but at the cost of lack of community cohesion, at the, the cost of increased welfare because you're paying it to private landlords. So in a way, the value of social housing is a lower welfare bill is a more cohesive society. Yeah. But yeah. If, you're, if you're fundamentally against council housing, you're willing to ignore that value that council housing provides. And without being too conspiratorial about it, you know, people that are a fragmented society are much easier to manipulate than ones that are, that, that, 
than, than are together and, and have a yeah. sense of identity or shared identity even. Definitely. I mean, I think that the Tories see, you know, welfare as something that should only be for the most desperate. You know, they don't sort of see why someone should aspire or would even want to live in social housing. They think everyone should aspire to own their own home, which I think is rubbish. You know, my granddad um, was offered to buy his um, council flat in Southwark and he never bought it. I don't think he saw the point of it. He'd have been shocked to have learned that it would then be worth like a quarter of a million. But, you know, he knew it was his home. He had a tenancy. Why would he need to buy it? And, you know, a lot of people have bought into that idea that, you know, you buy your own home and then, you know, it's, and, and that's, it's not necessarily the same in other countries. You know, I don't think that it's always been that way in, in Europe. I think it's, it's changing. But the problem here is that the Tories see social housing as something that should be for the most desperate in society. Same with their ideas about healthcare. They think anyone who can pay for healthcare or healthcare insurance should pay. And that's not why we pay our taxes. We pay our taxes because, you know, the Labour Party in 1945 invented the welfare state and you know made it a thing that would you know really enrich society you know you pay taxes and they would be invested in the nhs in council housing and i think you know our society is in is in in a real difficult situation now and i look at and it isn't necessarily because of capitalism i mean that's a one of the main causes but you look at scandinavian countries like sweden and norway where you know, those are capitalist economies, but they have a system whereby they like they, they raise the playing field and make it so that everyone, you know, where possible is kind of on an even level. So, you know, you feel in a society that if you've got, you know, a bit more than someone else, you don't mind actually, you know, paying that little bit extra. And I, I mean, that's certainly the society I'd like to live in. But I think the way that things are going over the last however many years, we had seven years of Tories in power. New Labour didn't go as far as they should have. Um, we're now seeing these kind of services being just reduced to a rump. Um, and I think that that's the long term plan that only the most desperate and needy will you know, have the benefits. And that, that's not what it was for. It was for everyone in society to enjoy you know, those services. Yeah, if you, you put your part of society in society welcomes you as opposed to. Yeah. If you're unlucky, then you go to these places that unlucky people go. Yep. Spot on. Well, look. Congratulations on your film. I think it's. I think it's a great. Thank you. It's a great documentary, and I think it, it's got a lot of important things to say. And that's and that's it. So, so thank you very much for for coming on the Britflix podcast and sharing your experience of making dispossession. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes, and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you.